Welcome to Fable and the Verbivore. I'm Fable, Beth Stedman. I'm the Verbivore, Laura Johnson. And this is a podcast for writers who love to read. Readers who love to write. And anyone who loves words. So we are super excited today. We have Joy McCullough with us, and she is an author and playwright and just an amazing person from the little bit that we know online. Uh, we are super excited to talk to her today. She has written two middle grade novels, a picture book, a New York Times bestselling picture book, and two um, YA novels. So both of her YA novels I have read and they blew my mind. <laughs> like Blood Water Paint it was incredible. It was the first um, modern novel in verse I had ever read. And it, I closed it and was like, I had no idea so you could do this with the book. Like it just, <laughs> it really blew my mind. It was incredible, um, powerful, fascinating, and just uh, unique in a, in a really a way that stood out. Um, it won a bunch of awards, which I'm not going to list right, right now because they're more than I could list in an introduction. <laughs> it deserved all of them and, and more really. Like I just, I'm a big fan and I'm kind of geeking out that we get to talk to you today. <laughs> Thank so. you so very much. <laughs> I'm delighted to be here. I have to tell you straight up, I am dog sitting and this dog is like oh. very needy. So if you hear little yelps or something, <laughs> hopefully he's going to chill out. <laughs> That's great. Sometimes our kids interrupt, so that's yeah. okay. <laughs> cool. We're all moms here. <laughs> well, normally we start with kind of having asking the question of when. What was your first experience that you can remember with story? Like when did that first connect with you? Yeah, I grew up in a house that revered books. Uh, my dad had thousands and thousands and his were like highbrow literature and theology. And my mom was a voracious reader of romance and mystery. And my dad took my sister and I to the bookstore and the ice cream shop every Saturday. Wow. And we didn't get to buy books every time, uh, in fact, rarely, but it was just normalized that going to browse and be there, and I can still envision the little children's corner in that bookstore in San Diego. So books were books and story were just always a part of our life. And um, I was a sort of dramatic, imaginative little kid, so my parents put me in theater classes early, early. I was in my first play when I was seven. And, and then I, theater was what I did. I did theater all through high school. It's what I studied in college. So for a long time, theater was really my storytelling medium. And for a long time after college, I was strictly a playwright, but that's, that's the direction I took in theater until I turned to fiction. But so it's, it's really been there in one form or another from the beginning. So I know that Bloodwater Paint was actually an adaptation, right, from a play. Yes. Um, of the same name. And I actually got to, I, I kind of went on YouTube and looked to see if I could see anything. And there was, there was a version of it done several years ago and there was a short clip on, which we'll link into the notes. Would you want to talk about how that process of kind of translating it from play to book was. Yeah, absolutely. And good on you for getting it right because so many people think that I wrote the play as an adaptation of the novel, <laughs> but it was a play first. Um, and yeah, I started writing it, the play in about 2001. And it had this ridiculously long development process where it would have readings at theaters and workshops, which are like not full productions. And theaters would tell me that it's such a beautiful play, but we're not going to put it in our season. Like it was just <laughs> a little too much for that. Uh, it was very frustrating. 
And it didn't have its debut or premiere production until 2015 with a small theater in Seattle called Live Girls. And by that time, I had started writing fiction. I wasn't published yet, but I had started writing fiction and had written and queried a whole bunch of novels, which we'll probably get to that. But um, I, and I was mostly writing middle grade, but I had drafted one YA and I started to think so in the pre-production for the play we were talking about whether it should have a rating um because the Susanna scenes the actress was topless it was you know and so there was some nudity and so we talked about it being I think we um ended up saying like 14 and up but that made me think oh but I really do hope teenagers come like I hope the fact that there's a rating actually makes teenagers you know want to (laughs) come because that small theater production was only going to have so much reach right and I felt like Artemisia was somebody who I wished I'd known about when I was a teenager and and I didn't. And and so I wanted it to have more reach and I knew it wasn't going to have that much reach as a play. And I started to think, you know, she's 17 for the bulk of the play. This could be a YA novel. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, that's where I decided to try making it into a YA novel in verse. (laughs) And why in verse? Like, that's such an interesting choice to me. I I love it. I think it works so well for the story and really adds to the power and drama of it. Um, Well, I'll say, first of all, I don't have a background in poetry. Um, I often have a lot of imposter syndrome. You know, I'll get asked to talk about poetry or teach a class or something. And I'm like, I'm not a poet. (laughs) I don't identify as a poet. Um, And I don't read standalone poetry very much either because I connect so much to story and character Mm -hmm. development. But I read a lot of novels in verse. There's kind of an explosion of them has been over the last 10 years in middle grade and young adult in particular. And so I'd been reading a lot and I'd been working with a few verse novelists as a mentor in Pitch Wars, which is this mm-hmm. program where yeah. you get paired up with a, with a writer. And, uh, and when I would get paired with a writer, I would say, I don't know anything about poetry. The poetry is up to you, but I'm so excited about your story. And in working on those stories, I, I started to ha- get more of an understanding of how verse novels worked and, and see their advantages. So yeah. there are a few things that made it right for Bloodwater Paint. One is that the story is so intense. It deals with some really graphic acts of violence, right? And if I were to write a prose novel and have to describe those things in detail, not only would it be brutal for me, I think it would be alienating for a reader. Yeah. Uh, Whereas with verse, you can have the same impact with lots fewer words and with a lot less description. And so that's really important. I also feel like um, if it had been a prose novel, it's historical, right? It's the 1600s. I would have had to describe so much more of the day-to-day life of of everything that they, the, the textures of the clothing and the food that they eat and the smells walking down the street, all of that so stuff. to give that world building. Yeah, that world building that makes you feel the 1600s in Rome. And I didn't want it to feel 1600s in Rome because it's very much a story of now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I didn't want that distance. I wanted it. It had to be there, but I wanted it also to feel now. So both of those things. And then also the, in terms of translation from play into verse, I think there's a lot of crossover, a lot of parallels. 
you know, and versus the white space on the page, the things that aren't said are really yeah. important. Um, and as a playwright, it's very spare. And what's not said on stage is often, you know, more important yeah. than what is said. And also the, the musicality and the rhythm of language, you know, plays are obviously written to be spoken aloud. And, and poetry, you know, I mean, books are, are published to be read, but poetry is, is really meant to be spoken or performed to a certain extent. So there's a lot of reasons that went into it, but it was just always immediately apparent to me. I didn't try writing it in prose or anything. I, I knew it was a verse story if it was going to be a novel. <laughs> I love that. It's so interesting to hear that process and just some of the whys. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I connect to it in that way that it felt timeless. And mm. it, I mean, it felt timely, but it also felt like this could be any point in time. And I think that's important from an yeah. accessibility standpoint is like, yes, this happened hundreds of years ago, but it could have happened yesterday and it could have happened a hundred years ago. Like it, it felt like it had that, no matter what your experience, experiencing trauma, experiencing even just a lack of power, like it, mm -hmm. it just felt so, I mean, I connected very strongly with that emotionally because I think it, it didn't go too far down that road and I, I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, I, it came out in early 2018, which was really just shortly after the explosion of Me Too with Harvey Weinstein and all that. And, and so in all the interviews, people would say, oh, this is so timely. And I'm like, first of all, I started writing the story in 2001, but like, it's always timely. If it hadn't been Me Too and Harvey Weinstein, you know, it would have been Brett Kavanaugh a couple of years later or in Bill Cosby now, you know, like it's always timely. Um, so yeah. I think it was so powerful too, to realize like, just to know that it was based on a true story and to recognize mm -hmm. like, this is actually something that happened and a woman who lived and went through this. And, and it was mind boggling to me. Like, I don't think I had any concept, you know, I, we all have concepts of that. Like, this is stuff that's been going on for forever and <laughs> women have not had power ever in history. Um, but even as a history major, it was mind boggling to me that she took him to court and won like in the 1600s and like that, it's horrible how she had what she had to go through to win tells its own story sort of but but it's kind of empowering and encouraging to know that that people have won at times and that yeah does that make sense or even at great cost and I think both of your books deal with that in some way like this idea that it is worth speaking up and saying something but that speaking up and saying something also comes with a cost because of these systems yeah. that are in place and that's really important stuff to look at i think yeah absolutely and to me giving that language to young readers in particular mm -hmm. there's a ton of crossover with ya and i have a lot of adult readers and i'm i love that but in particular giving that to to younger people because you know there was so much i didn't have language for yes. um as a teenager that that you know i wish i did but in lieu of that <laughs> tried to share it with younger people yeah i feel like when i read we were the ashes we are the fire like one of my first thoughts when i finished it was i wish i had had this book when i was in college like it Aww. felt like this is the book that i needed and i still loved it reading it at almost 40 but I just felt like, oh, I wish I had had this at 20. <laughs> like, that yeah. Was really when... Well, I'm sorry you needed it, but, <laughs> but thank you for the compliment. Yeah. And I do think it's just really important to just pass on these stories and to, yeah. to keep telling them and to tell them to, to young people. And... Yeah. That's something that I keep coming back to in my work is 
the stories that have been forgotten? What are the stories yeah. that we keep telling and why, why do we keep telling those stories and uh, you know, what's powerful about them? And then on the other hand, what are the stories that we sweep under the rug and we don't want to tell anyone? You know, I'm a pastor's <laughs> daughter and I hadn't heard of Judith or Susanna before I learned about Artemisia, you know, because a bunch of biblical scholars hundreds of years ago yeah. decided they were apocrypha. Uh, just a coincidence that they're these strong, interesting women, I'm sure. <laughs> I, in reading, it was either an interview or the back of the book that you were talking about that. And I'm like, I hadn't heard of them either mm -hmm. until I discovered your book, you know, and that, yeah. it, it was empowering to gain those stories back. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I know you're, um, is it smoke and dust is your that's um, a play yeah mm -hmm. and that also focuses on another historical character who or yeah historical person who was a woman and a composer correct that's uh, right barbara strozzi and she's also in the 1600s she was in venice and she was this um really prolific composer but of course, the men uh, didn't like her stepping onto their territory. So rumors swirled that she was a courtesan. And you can't tell from the historical record whether she was. And she may have been because she had like four children and never married. And she supported them and survived. And there's not that many ways to do that. Yeah. So like she maybe was or that was used as slander. So yeah, it's another similar sort of historical character. Have you always been interested in history or is that like what brought you, know, you to those things? It's funny. I, I definitely wasn't growing up or in high school and I didn't take much history in college. So I, I don't have like a background in history. It's just in terms of, of story of what's interesting to me. I think there's so much to be learned. Um, and I always think it's really interesting, the echoes, you know, the things that we keep doing over and over again, right? Um, or how things change. So history fascinates me now, uh, much more than when I was younger. And I'm not sure why that is. Maybe it's part of getting older. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I, I was a history, well, I was a theater major first, actually, and then changed to history. <laughs> and mainly because of that, because of stories, and because mm. I, I like those big arching things, like seeing the things that come back around or that we can't quite seem to learn, um, right. that we kind of repeat. It gives you this sense that the world is so much bigger than we think it is. You know, we think that, oh, these things that we're dealing with are so traumatic, or they only happen now, or this is the worst, you know, you hear a lot of that kind of like, this is the worst time in history. And then you start looking and you're like, oh, these things have been happening for a long time. Right. Um, and it just gives you a broader sense of the world, I think, and that's just really important. So I love seeing when people can reimagine history in a way that's actually active and living. And I, and I think your books absolutely do that in a way that's really accessible for people. Thank you. That's the goal. <laughs> yeah. I want to maybe talk a little bit about how you research for, I, I'm, I saw a little bit about what you had done in reading trial notes for a Bloodwater paint. Do you want to talk a little bit about your, your process for that? Sure, absolutely. For anyone who is intrigued by Artemisia's story, whether they read Bloodwater paint or not, um, yeah. you can read the entire trial transcript translated into English. Mm -hmm. it's, there's a book, the title is Artemisia Gentileschi by Mary D. Garrard. And at the back of that book, the complete trial transcript, which just blows my mind that it even exists. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and that was my principal 
document for when I was writing the play. There's actually, over the last 10 years, she sort of broke out a lot more and there's been these big ex exhibits of her work and they've been discovering more of her paintings. But I started in 2001, which first of all, the internet was in its infancy. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, and there just wasn't as much information about her. There weren't any like definitive biographies except for this Mary D. Garrard book, which is more focused on her art. Um, an analysis of her art, not so much her life. And so the the trial transcript gave me a ton of information about her, of, of who she was, but also the other players in the story. But it's interesting for a play, I don't have to do as much research mm -hmm. because I've got designers and a director <laughs> and actors, uh, you know, and so I can say in a stage direction, she paints. I don't have to know what that entails. I don't have to know, you know, how the paint smells or how you thin it or how you do the stretcher bars or any of that stuff. And so when I came to making it into a novel, I had to do a lot more research. Mm -hmm. um, for that, it was largely into painting. So into research, um, researching techniques of how they would have painted then too, not, not now. And also the play is entirely set in her studio, but one of my early notes from my agent, he was like, maybe you should let her go outside. <laughs> uh, which, you know, here I had Rome as a setting. So, but then I needed to research Rome and the trial transcript actually gave me, you know, was, it had street names and things. So I was able to pinpoint where she lived. And so then look at the map. And so, for example, there's a scene in the book where she's at a fountain with her mother and they're renovating it. And that's a fountain right in her neighborhood and they were renovating it when she was that age. So that, that is a historical detail that was just happenstance in finding it. Right. Yeah. But then, but then wove it in. So yeah, the, the main thing. And, but again, since it wasn't a prose novel, I didn't have to do as much research as I might have on like all the other little details. But yeah, the, the stuff about painting, cause I'm not a painter and, and sort of Rome and the, the area were the additional things to make it a novel that I had to do. <laughs> well, you kind of fooled me. Cause I'm like, I wonder if she paints. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that was, it, it was so immersive in the, in the painting world. Like that totally translated. So I was curious. <laughs> Thank you. No, I have zero. My daughter is, is an extraordinary artist and I don't know where she got it. Uh, I have zero talent in that way. <laughs> and one of the things I really appreciated too in um, We Are the Ashes, We Are the Fire is you kind of address some of the complexity of researching history and not finding a lot sometimes yeah. and then having to sort of in in that book, your main character is writing a story about a historical figure and kind of ends up maybe extrapolating more than she should and realizing that and that maybe there isn't enough evidence to actually back up her story, which I think is a really fascinating thing to look at, even just in itself, that concept of how we research history and what stays and gets kept and what gets thrown out and just the subtlety of, of handling that well mm -hmm. and not jumping to conclusions or making your own stories, unless that's what you're doing, you know, <laughs> unless you're telling a novel and then you have that freedom. But there's, yeah, it was an, it was an interesting thing to explore, I think. And I, that book had honestly like so much layer to it. Like there was so many interesting things, like even just as that character is writing the story, the way you describe her obsession with writing that story was so relatable. And so like, <laughs> oh, I've been there. <laughs> right. <laughs> And, yeah, and really that that story came. So Marguerite de Bressio is the figure. Um, and 
I saw a tweet from this account called Rejected Princesses, okay. and they tweet about sort of badass historical women who wouldn't be Disney princesses. <laughs> and they tweeted about Marguerite de Brasio, and they had this thread about her and who she was and what she did. And I saw that, and I was like, cool. Didn't immediately think, oh, it's a book. And then a few days later, that account tweeted again and said, so it's come to our attention. Uh, historical Twitter has come for me, <laughs> telling me that you, she probably didn't exist. She was probably more of a legend. Historical record is unclear. And that was when I got interested because I thought, you know, either way, it's compelling. It's yeah. obviously compelling if she was real. Right. But it's super compelling to me, too, if she wasn't, because that means that was a story that people wanted to tell and wanted yeah. to pass down. People needed that story. So whether she was real or whether she was created to fill a need was interesting to me. Mm -hmm. And so that's sort of where that, that grew out of in the story. But yeah, I definitely do not write nonfiction. I'm writing novels. Uh, I like the ability to, you know, yeah. extrapolate and, <laughs> and make up things and, and give characters dialogue and all that. So did you start then with her story? Like, or like, cause we're naturally through the fire. You have these two stories kind of running in mm -hmm. parallel and, and the character writing her story, but then you also have the character's own story. And yeah, where did you start with that? Cause then. Yeah. So, well, the idea started with Mar learning about Marguerite, but I knew immediately knew that what I was interested in was this question yeah. of whether she was real or whether she was not real. And so I needed, I needed another character to grapple with that. Yeah. Um, so I figured out, I think my earliest pages of drafting were the verse historical, but I knew that it was being because the conceit of the book is that the present day girl is writing the verse. Right. Um, and I knew that from the beginning I had figured out, mm -hmm. okay, I'm going to have a girl writing this story. So yeah, I think I did. But, and then I sort of went back and forth. It wasn't like I wrote one through and wrote the other through because they, sure. they feed each other. Yeah. Um, so I would do, I wouldn't usually um, do, do both in one day in one writing session. Mm -hmm. So generally I'd either be writing the present or I'd be writing the past but I would go back and forth. And what does your writing process usually look like? Do you outline first? Are you a pantser? Yeah. What does that look like for you? Yeah, I'm kind of a mix. I don't do like a really thorough outline. Although now, so now I often am selling books on proposal and you have to give them a synopsis. Right. We'll sell the book with like a synopsis in 50 pages. So I've had to learn to be a little bit more of a planner, um, but I've never been a complete pantser. That, that's wild to me. I, I, I generally know like the the major beats of the story. I want to know where I'm going and might not know how I'm getting there. And I usually do a fair amount of work ahead of time before I'm actually drafting that's character development and diving into who they really are and what they, what they want and what they need and all that kind of stuff before I get to actually drafting words. So I do more planning on that end than like outlining the plot. Most of my yeah. stuff is super character driven anyway, and it's not about plot. So it works for me. That makes sense. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. Okay, I have another question too. So you write in a, a broad range of genres. Yeah. <laughs> like, how did you how did you do that? Because most of the time, us writers were told like stick to one genre, stick to one thing. And, uh, yeah. So my agent signed me with middle grade, and the book we put on submission didn't sell. Um, and that was when I I actually so I'd had a long journey of querying and querying and querying. I Bloodwater Paint was my debut novel, but it was the tenth novel I wrote, and it was the fifth novel that agents had put on submission to editors. 
So I had been going for yeah. a while. Um, so after that first middle grade didn't sell, I gave my agent a list of ideas because I was so tired of writing things that weren't going to sell, saying, what do you think? Like, is there anything in here I shouldn't write? Do you have any guidance? And he immediately was like, I think you should write the one about the artist. And so I did. So I debuted with YA. But of those nine previous manuscripts, eight of them had been middle grade. I really felt much more like a middle grade writer. So it was always something that I wanted to come back to. And so, so there I was in middle grade and my middle grades are all contemporary at this point. Although across the pond has, she finds a diary and, and that's from, from World War II era. But yeah, I, middle grade was sort of always who I was, but then I debuted with YA. So now I have this (laughs) YA career happening. Picture books came in just for a long time. I I had tried picture books multiple times and not been been able to nail it. They are so hard to be able to tell a story, you know, in that few words and make it compelling and interesting. And, And so I had just not been able to do it for a while until actually when I was writing Across the Pond, which is a middle grade novel about a girl who gets into bird watching, I learned about Harriet Lawrence Hemingway, who was this woman who um, organized a boycott of feathered hats to save uh-huh. birds. And it ended up leading to the founding of the Audubon Society. And so I found that in research for my middle grade novel. And I was like, well, that is a picture book. Can you just imagine the beautiful hats and the beautiful birds? And, um, and so I tried again with picture books and that time I got it. That book actually sold before Champ and Major, my, my book about the Biden dogs. Um, but the Biden dog book just happened super fast because they wanted it to come out around sure. inauguration. So um, the, the other picture book is coming out next spring. But it's just, I just have, I get these ideas and, and follow them. And I'm really grateful that I have an agent who is not the kind who says yeah. you have to pick one lane. He's willing to follow me and And also another thing is I write fast and the process, the publishing process is sometimes very, very slow. And so if I've sent something off to my editor, I'm not just going to sit and wait till I get feedback. It might be four or five months, right? So I have to, and writing is my full-time job now. So like it's out. I'm not going to just sit around, you know, eating bonbons. Um, I've got to, I've got to work on something. So, uh, so it's nice to have multiple categories so that when one thing's off, you know, you can work on the other. It's also nice because my, my YA tends to be so much heavier and darker. Um, and my middle grade is all pretty light and fun. So it gives me you know, sure, you can kind of shade. bounce around yeah. <laughs> depending how I'm feeling. <laughs> yeah, I totally get that. <laughs> That's great. I love that persistence in your story, like to write 10 books and keep trying and to have five go on submission and not get picked up. Like, I just, I love that. We don't talk about that enough, I think. Like, you know, like we talk about the big success story or mm-hmm. so wrote a book and got New York Times bestseller or whatever. And and most of the time, that's not how it works. Like for most authors, it is yeah. slow, steady persistence. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm really open about it because of that, because I, I feel like some people, uh, they almost feel embarrassed, you yeah. know, to talk about it, um, that, that it took them so long or whatnot. But I'm like, no, I'm proud of the persistence. I'm proud yeah. of the fact that I stuck with it and I eventually got there, you know, yeah. um, and I feel like talking about it usually when I sometimes I'll, I'll talk about it on Twitter and people either say 
oh my gosh, thank you so much. You make me feel not alone, blah, blah, blah. Or there are the people who've just written their first novel and sent it out and think it's going to be a bestseller. And they're like, what? You mean it takes that long? And I'm like, not for everyone necessarily, but it might, you know, and you can't do it for whatever those external validation things are that you think you're going to get. You have to be doing it because you've got these stories you have to tell and only you can tell. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I love that. And do you mind if I ask you about picture books? Because I'm no. Go ahead. A couple picture book ideas. So I I was curious how that process worked for you. Did you get the kernel of the idea and then you wrote everything and then you got an illustrator through your publisher after Mm -hmm. you? How, How did that process work for you? Yeah. So, um, first of all, I will say I, even though, um, I have a third picture book coming, I feel very much like, I don't know about picture books, but I can tell you the basics, (laughs) which is that when you are not an author illustrator, um, I'm just the author. I just do the text and send that to my agent. And that's what my agent sends out to editors to sell. And then the publisher is the one who, who, um, in all three cases, well, not so much Champa Major because that one happened so fast. But in the other two, they sent me like the portfolios of three or four different artists saying, what do you think? Do you have any preferences? Um, with Champa Major, they sent me one and they were like, what do you think? We like her and she's available. You better like her too. <laughs> Which thankfully I did. She was fantastic. But, uh, but yeah, so that's sort of how it goes. I think that there are some picture book creators who can partner up with illustrators once they're super established, you know, like really, really established and they might have an illustrator they want to work with. But at my stage, I write the text, my agent sells it. And then the publisher is the one who finds the art. And every time I'm like, I don't know, I love them all. I think artists are so amazing and I couldn't ever do any of it. (laughs) I always just am blown away and say, oh, (laughs) So you do have two books, right? Coming out in the spring. Is that correct? Next Um, year I have um, a picture book coming out and then I have a co-authored Little Women retelling set in World War II. And that's where each writing a March sister. So that's with Tess Sharp, Jessica Spotswood, and Carolyn Tung Richmond. So that's coming out in spring. And then in summer of next year, I have another middle grade coming out. Um, and that's called Not Starring Zadie Louise. And it's my theater book. Um, so yeah, that's next year. <laughs> Very fun. <laughs> and Harriet's ruffled feathers looks fantastic. Yes. I, I saw that. I'm like, the birds, like being able to save the birds by cutting down on the hats. This is an audio medium, so the (laughs) listeners won't be able to see, but I'm holding up the cover. Isn't it adorable? Beautiful. (laughs) Yeah. I'm really excited about that. And the artist that did that book actually did my cover for Across the Pond. So we've gotten to work together a couple times now. Her name is Romina Galata and she's fantastic. That's great. We like to end by asking if you have any advice for other writers and writers at any stage. And what would you tell them or what do you wish someone had told you maybe early on? Yeah. So, well, one of my pieces of advice I always give is something someone told me early on. Um, Mm -hmm. During the production of my first play, uh, which was during college, my college playwriting professor during intermission took me to his office so I didn't have to talk to people. And he sat down and said, what are you working on? And I was like, 
what what do you mean we're just the play's not even over yet and he was like that play's written what are you working on now mm-hmm. and ever since then i have been really good at as soon as something is out in the world i work on something else and that's how yeah. i wrote 10 books before getting yeah. published you know in not that many years i don't know how many years it took but it wasn't a super long time because i get started on the next thing and it's so great my the best thing about doing that is once you've got something out in the world and it, rejections start coming in. If you are focused on something else and excited about that new thing, it's easier to take the rejections. Sometimes I'd even get to the point where I'm like, well, I don't even want that thing to sell because this new thing I'm writing on (laughs) right now is the one, you know? Um, So, and then the other piece of it is that by the time you've queried everyone and realized that manuscript is not going to sell, well, then you're close to starting to query something else. So not to say don't take breaks, downtime is good, all of that, but don't write a book and query it and then wait, you know, because that it doesn't work out for a lot of people. So, so get working on the next thing. So that's one, one big piece of advice. And then the other one um, that's really important to me is, is to find your community and the writing community is so active online Mm -hmm. that even if you live somewhere that doesn't, you know, I live in Seattle, which has an amazing literary community, but almost all of my writing friends are people that I met online. (laughs) Um, You know, it's just, it's, it's not, hard to and now with zoom and you know with the pandemic one silver lining is more book events and things that are accessible to everyone so finding your people because i have critique partners that i had at the very first manuscript way 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 back who are still my good friends you know and we've come up together and i was the last one to get published which was hard but also meant that by the time I got published I had this whole group of friends who'd been through it and who knew and could give me advice and you know say oh that's normal or and just having those people to go to to celebrate or to complain or grieve you know is is so important so yeah the community and the moving on to the next thing are my two biggest pieces of advice there would have worked for me your mileage may vary (laughs) (laughs) sure I love that so much do you have any advice for like finding that community you mentioned online but is there anything specifically you did that helped kind of make those connections more you know that just went beyond helps those connections get beyond just that initial yeah follow you or you follow me right right I mean part of it is um like it's always changing and this was more than 10 years ago. So like message boards and blogs were a bigger deal. So how you initially connect, uh, you know, I I don't know what the, the main way to do it now necessarily is, but what I would say is that when you do connect with people online, um, not have it be about here, let's, let's exchange manuscripts. Have it be about getting to know people. You know, my my oldest critique partner, who we've been writing friends and exchanging manuscripts for so long, we got to know each other because we were both writing middle grade and had small kids at home and, you know, had things in common. And we got to know each other on a personal level. We were making connections, not in the business sense, but in the actual connection sense. So getting to know people, not in a networky way, it'll end up working out that way. But forming genuine relationships with people Mm. is what you want to be doing because those are the ones that are going to bear fruit later, you know, but I don't know. I know that, that programs like pitch wars um, are things that where a lot of people 
come together, but not everyone gets accepted into those programs. So that's hard. There are people who I've gotten friendly with just by knowing them on Twitter and then, you know, interacting there and then reaching out in DMs and saying, hey, I was thinking about you, you know, how are you? And it's coming from a place of genuine interest in them, not, you know, what can they do for me? That is great advice. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Joy, for being with us and for sharing all of that. It was so encouraging and inspiring too. So, and thank you for writing. Like your stories are important and we're really glad that we get to read them and can't wait to read more of them in the future. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. This was so lovely. It was such a great pleasure. And I just want you to know personally, when I read Bloodwater Paint, I really, it's one that I want to give to my daughter. Like it, it, it touched me in a place where, you know, Bethany had said that it was something that she wished that she had had earlier in life. And it's one that I want her to read for that reason too. Like the, the stories that uh, Artemisia's mother told her, I want mm-hmm. my daughter to hear those. And it, it just meant a lot. And I really thank you. It. <laughs> yeah. It's dedicated to my daughter for the same reasons. <laughs> so, thank you. Thank you.